The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Would you take your Bible and find the Gospel of Luke, please? Luke chapter 5 this morning. I'd like to take a few moments to study the familiar story of Peter's call from Christ to follow him. So we'll look together in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. The Scripture says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he, Christ, stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people out of the ship. And now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing This next phrase is the title of our thought this morning. But nevertheless, at thy word, I will. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. When they had done, when they, this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. Jesus is teaching in the region of the Sea of Galilee. He has gained quite notoriety and fame and wherever he travels, there's a multitude He's going from synagogue to synagogue to speak. But in the process of time, as he's traveling between these synagogues, a crowd begins to follow him. He finds himself on a mountainside, a hillside that is just adjacent to the Sea of Galilee. And this great multitude is is building day by day as he speaks. The crowd is so large on one particular day that as he continues to back up to be able to see the entire audience and for them to be able to hear what he has to say, he finds that he's against the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, he makes a decision and he sees very conveniently, providentially, that there are two boats that are adjacent. So he, he somewhat co-ops a boat. He enters a boat and he says, would you push this boat out a little bit from the land so that I can continue teaching? He did that for a reason. If you've ever visited the Sea of Galilee, you know that you can be in the middle of that sea, that lake, and if the waters are still and the winds are quiet, you can hear people speaking on the other side of the seashore. So acoustically, it made perfect sense what Christ was doing. So he co-opted that boat and said to Simon, Simon thrust out a little bit so that I can teach this crowd. And the Bible says that he sat down and he taught. But then as he taught, he began to work the call of Peter to follow him into the process. For the next few minutes, I'd, I would like to share with you four principles that were in, in Peter's life, but in the process of Peter's life, we can see those principles superimposed and, and, uh, and applied to our lives. The very first principle would be this, is after Jesus is teaching, you see it in verse number four, after he has finished teaching the multitudes, he then speaks to Simon. Here's the first principle. It's the personal principle. 
that Jesus spoke to the crowd, but he called Peter personally. You see, despite the multitude being present, Jesus had a laser-like focus. He singled out Peter in that moment. And every time Jesus would speak, he would often hear him say this phrase. In fact, Caleb prayed it as he was praying this morning. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. What he was saying was this, that what I have said may it be applied to you personally. It's seen over and over again in the Gospels. So I ask you the question this morning. As we gather in this multitude of thousands, do you have ears to hear? It is not just simply what is said from this pulpit, but what ultimately matters eternally is what the Holy Spirit says to your soul as he speaks to you personally. Now notice what he said to Peter when he spoke to him personally. Look again at verse 4. When he left speaking, he said unto Simon Peter, launch out into the deep. The word launch that is used there is found four times in the New Testament in the original language in some form. And those four times are all found in the Gospel of Luke. It was a navigational term of the Koine Greek, but if you go back to the classical Greek, you're going to find that it had just a shade of meaning. It had, a, had the idea of doing something new. Plato used it to refer to the opening of the mind. The education would broaden the mind. Aristotle used it in the context of medicine. When someone was ill, the physician would bring renewed healing. I think there's a shade of meaning of that even here in verse number four. When he was saying to Peter, launch out of the deep, physically he was saying, take your boat and let's go to the depths of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to the middle of the Sea of Galilee. But I do think there's a figurative aspect that's applied to our lives as well, that you, you're at a place in life where you need to, to launch out. You need to pursue the new. Generally, the fishermen of that day would fish around the shore because that's where the fish would be. The waters would be too deep in the middle of the sea and their nets wouldn't reach that far. And generally they would fish at night when the waters were cool. That's when the fish would come up. And now, now Jesus is giving an instruction to Peter that is completely counter to the professional practice of fishing of that day. Launch out into the deep. The word deep has the idea of that which is unfathomable. They didn't know how deep the Sea of Galilee was. In fact, many people believed during that time, they assumed that there were, there were ghosts, that there were demons, that the, the evil of the world was at the bottom of that sea. That would explain when Jesus was walking on the water in the midst of the storm and the disciples see him, they're afraid and they say, it's a ghost. They assumed that in the center of that sea, that danger would come to them in a spiritual form. And now Jesus comes in verse 4, and he speaks personally to Simon Peter, and he says, launch out, do something new you don't usually do into unfathomable, unknown waters. And today Jesus is doing that to each of you. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, he's speaking to you, challenging you to launch out into the unknown, to launch out into the unfamiliar and trust him. Forgive a personal illustration, but this is the personal principle. But I understand because of the work that God has done in my life. When I was at the age of 15, I, I, I struggled with God's call for my life. 
I was raised, as many of you know, in the hills of East Tennessee. And during the time of 1985 and 1986, when I was a teenager in high school, there were great youth revivals that were occurring across the, the region. And churches would ha- host those youth revivals. And great decisions were being made. There were young people that were being saved. There were young people that were getting right with God. Many were called to, to full-time ministry. Many young men were called to preach. And I began to sense that call in my life. I began to sense that God was calling me to preach as well. But my problem was I am the most unlikely character to do what I'm doing today. I'm a classic introvert. I'm most comfortable sitting on the back seat of any auditorium. I'm very uncomfortable in this setting, in this moment. And the greater difficulty for me was in my elementary years. I had a speech impediment. And for, for many of my early elementary years, I had to take speech therapy. And, and in my mind, I'm completely unqualified. I'm completely unable to do what God is calling me or what I think God is calling me to do. And I remember as I was pondering that and praying about that, I, I said to the Lord, I don't want to feel like I'm called. By the way, I'm still that way today. I don't, oper- I don't like to operate by feelings. You know, in our culture today, there's a phrase, when you ask someone something, if you ask them about it, they'll say, well, I feel like. If I'm in a meeting with you and I hear you say, I feel like, I say, well, do you feel like or do you think? Because if you feel like, that's emotion. If you think, quite honestly, that's opinion. But if you know, that's conviction. And in my life, I decided in that moment that I don't want to operate by emotion or opinion. I wanted to know, God, have you called me to do what you're seemingly calling me to do? And I gave every excuse. I I can't speak. I'm, I'm not a good speaker. I'm scared to death to be in front of people. And by asking God to show me with unequivocal, unequivocal conviction in that moment, I remember in my bedroom, late one night as I was reading the word, he gave me a verse. Jeremiah chapter one, verse number eight. Be not afraid of their faces, for I will be with thee. That takes care of the introversion. It doesn't matter how fearful I may be. It doesn't matter how scared I may be of the crowd. As long as God is with me, I can do the job. And then the very next verse, he told Jeremiah, he said, uh, that I'm going to put forth my hand, I'm going to touch your mouth, for my words will be in your mouth. And that verse resonated with me. And I recognized that it was not what I could do. It is ultimately what God could do. And God gave me that personal conviction of what I am to do with my life in the call to preach. Now you say, Dr lands that call to preach has you now working on an administrative staff of a college. Do you recognize I struggled with that for a number of years before I came here? My identity was wrapped up in the fact that I felt as if I had to be a pastor. But then I go back to that very single call and I recognize that the call to preach is something that is in my life and will always be there. But the expression of that call can be different because lo and behold, as I'm working on the administrative staff, the executive leadership team of this college, I still have the opportunity to preach. And the things that I've enjoyed and the things that I have done go all the way back to that that single most important personal decision because Christ spoke to me personally and called me to do something that was beyond myself. And I say that this morning because I, I want to remind you that he that hath an ear, let him hear. Because Christ is speaking to you personally this morning. 
It's not just John Lands standing at this pulpit speaking to this congregation. The Holy Spirit speaks to you personally. He guides you. He instructs you. He, he calls you. And it is not sufficient to feel as if you're called. It's not sufficient to think that you are called. It requires that you know. And when you ask for that definitive knowledge, he always gives it to you. The personal principle is this, that Jesus called Peter individually, not the crowd. But I want you to notice, secondly, the purpose principle. When you read this story, Peter says, we have fished all night, we have toiled all night, and we have taken nothing. nothing. And, and, and here is the purpose of that. Because they caught nothing, the, the catching nothing was just as significant and as important as catching the boatload of fish after Jesus instructed them to. You see, what Jesus was showing them, that they can't do it all. Peter was a master fisherman. He was a man of professional fishing. But he, he was coming to the point that he recognized, I can't do this in my own strength. And let me tell you something. You can't live the Christian life in your own strength. You can't do what Christ has called you to do in your own strength. And here is even better news. Jesus did not call you to be successful. Jesus called you to be faithful. Write it in your notes, 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It does not say successful, but a man be found faithful. And if you are living a success-oriented life, determined that you're going to be a success, then you're living life all about you. Instead, live the stewardship life, the servant life that says, Lord, you use me for a greater purpose. And in that process, you're going to find that both failure and success are part of God's plan. And God often uses those failures that you experience to shape you into who he intends you to be. I don't know if you know the name Samuel Pierpont Langley. I, I dare say you probably don't, but he was a prominent figure in the, in the early 20th century. He was a gentleman that was in the pursuit of, uh, of man-powered flight, powered man flight. And uh, it would be equal to our pursuit for artificial intelligence in this day. And, but everyone was trying to, 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 to master the air and aeronautics. And Samuel Pierpont Langley was the one who was assumed to have the recipe for success. He was a man that was a Harvard graduate. He was a man that had all the connections. He was connected with the Smithsonian. Uh, the War Department had given him $50,000, and in that time that was a large sum of money, to be able to develop what was referred to as a flying machine. Money was no problem. Harvard was a connection. Smithsonian was available. And as a result... Langley hired the best minds that he could find and found the best market conditions that he could. And, and, and in fact, the New York Times was so impressed with him, they followed him everywhere he, go, he would go. They, they, would, they would chronicle the story, assuming that it would end in his success. And yet today, none of us really know the name Samuel Pierpont Langley. You know the reason why? Because a few hundred miles away in Dayton, Ohio, Orville and Wilbur Wright, they had no money. They, they had to pay for their dream from the proceeds of their bicycle shop. And 
not one single person on the Wright Brothers team was an engineer, not even Orville or Wilbur, and, and, and most definitely the New York Times was not following them anywhere they went. And every time they were trying to, uh, to overcome uh, aeronautical obstacles, they would fail. They failed multiple times. And in fact, it's told that the Wright Brothers, when they would build their prototypes, they would always buy five sets of pieces because they would always crash each piece, uh, each plane five times a day until they would finally have success. What the difference was between Samuel Pierpont Langley and the Wright brothers was this, was that the Wright brothers, who didn't have it all, they didn't have the, uh, the, 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 the intellectual acumen and the connections and the financing, they were driven by a cause, they had a greater purpose, they had a belief that they could do it. And as a result, the people who were on their team believed it as well, and, and they were working to change the course of the world, but it was different for Samuel Pierpont Langley. You know what he wanted? He wanted to be rich. He just wanted to be famous. And eventually, on December the 17th, 1903, when the Wright brothers took flight successfully, there's only a handful of people, a handful of people there that was able to see that experience. And the news began to go around the world shortly, a few days later. And when Langley heard that the Wright brothers had conquered aeronautics, that very day, Langley quit. He very easily could have said, hey guys, that's an amazing discovery. We've been working on the same thing and maybe we could come together. Now that you've you had the initial success, we can work together to make this better. But instead, since he was not first, since he was not the one who received the initial notoriety, he quit and he walked away because he perceived not being first as failure. I want to ask you today, what are you doing with your failures? As a Christian, we're reminded in Proverbs 24, verse number 16, for a just man falleth seven times and he riseth up again. Maybe there's a course that you're taking and you say, Dr. Lance, I am a success at failing. I'm doing it very well. And you're ready to quit, but I'm here to challenge you. There is a purpose in that failure. And God uses that failure to prepare you for who you can be. That leads me to the third thought, the potential principle. Jesus saw who Peter would be, not who he was. This is something that jumped off the page of my Bible when I was reading it. Look at verse number eight. The Bible says, and when Simon Peter saw it. Now, chronologically in the story, Simon's name has not been changed yet. This is prior to Caesarea Philippi, where he says, thou art the Messiah. And Peter says, from this point forward, you'll be called Peter. But, but in this moment, I think Luke, under inspiration, is reminding us that, that even at the initial call of Peter, when the world looked at him and said, he's Simon, Jesus was looking at him and said, no, that's Peter. It was something that changed Peter's life. The Bible says after he had obeyed the Lord and he said, nevertheless, at thy word I will. And they let down the nets and they, they brought in that great multitude of fishes. They broke their net. It was then that Peter recognized who Christ was. And the Bible says, verse 8 again, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I, I note that nowhere in this text did anyone say anything about his sin. But in the presence of Christ, who's performed this wonderful miracle that is out of the ordinary, that is unconventional in the mind of the Galilean fishermen, Peter's convicted. 
Notice what he says. He says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you write in your Bible, circle the word Lord in verse number eight. And then in verse number, uh, verse number five, circle the word master, if you would, please. When he speaks to Jesus after Jesus says, launch out of the deep, he says, master, we've toiled all night. We've, thought, we've taken nothing. Master, that word master has the idea of someone who's a superintendent, someone who's an overseer, someone who is a boss. But when he comes to the reality of who Jesus really is, he's no longer master, he is Lord. And I ask you this morning, young person, is the Lord, is Jesus the Lord of your potential? When the world looked at Simon, they saw him as uneducated. They saw him as short-tempered. He was foul-mouthed, perhaps violent. You know, he did cut off Malchus's ear. But in spite of all of the world's opinion, Jesus in that moment, under the Middle Eastern sun, there on the seashore of Galilee, he saw not a rough, redneck Galilean fisherman. He saw the flaming evangelist of Pentecost. He saw potential that no one else could see. You see, Jesus specializes in seeing not what we are, but what we can be. Listen, if you're here today and others have missed your potential, don't worry about it. You're in good company. Did you realize that Beethoven's music teacher actually told his parents that he was, quote, too stupid to ever be a music composer? In 1919, Walt Disney was fired from one of his first animation jobs at the Kansas City Star newspaper because the editor felt he lacked, quote, lacked imagination and had no good ideas. In his early childhood years, Albert Einstein would, had a lot of difficulty communicating and learning in the traditional way. In fact, if he would be alive today in, the, in, this, in this time frame, Albert Einstein would probably be, probably be diagnosed with a, with a learning disability or a, or a learning disorder. Yet in spite of all of his behavioral and communication problems, it didn't impact his intellectual ability. And lo and behold, this problem student received the Nobel Peace Prize in physics. Don't worry if others don't see your potential. Jesus does. We live in a culture that we don't take the time to, to see who is around us and, and the potential that is there. A few years ago, the Washington Post did a test of how attentive D.C. residents were. They, they placed a famous violinist. His name was Joshua Bell. They placed him on a subway platform in D.C. And he took a $3.5 million Stradivarius and began to play on that subway platform. He was dressed in a nondescript t-shirt. He wore a cap. And as he played, it was out of the ordinary for him because Joshua Bell, when he would play, he would always play to packed out concert halls. His typical fee was $1,000 a minute that he plays. And there on that subway platform for 43 minutes he played with a total of 1,097 people passing by, yet only seven people stopped to listen. A few through change into his violin case, and his pay for the day was $32. The article was, was quite, quite interesting. In fact, the, the writer who wrote the article received a Pulitzer Prize for it, and, and, and the writer made a, a very adept point. He made the point that we're often not aware of the greatness around us. Sometimes we don't take the time to, to see who is around us. And, and college students recognize that sitting in this room today are people who will change the world. And you may be one of them. And, and the impact that you have and the influence that you have is greater than this moment. Don't discount people 
because of where they are right now. And I'm thankful that Jesus is one who doesn't discount us because of who we are now, but he sees who we can be. That personal principle is Jesus called Peter individually, not the crowd. The purpose principle, that catching nothing was as significant as catching a boatload. The potential principle, Jesus saw who Peter would be and not who he was. Here's the fourth principle, the presence principle. The truth is, Jesus didn't need Peter's boat, but Peter needed Jesus in his boat. Do you realize Jesus didn't need that boat? How do I know that? May I remind you, I've already said this, Jesus was able to walk on water. If Jesus had wanted to speak to that crowd, he could have bypassed those two boats, walked out to the center of the sea, developed a stage on the waves, and spoken as long as he wanted to. But because Jesus is a personal Savior, because there's a personal relationship, he was willing to say, for a moment, I want to use the tools that Peter has to show him there's a greater cause, there's a greater work that can be done through my power. Peter... You need me more than I need you. But what if Peter had said no? I remind you, the Bible says in verse number two, there were two ships that were there on that lake. Had Peter said, no, I don't think I will. I got it together. Yeah, we had a rough night, but we'll be able to fish tomorrow, this evening. We'll, we'll catch some more. That's, that's out of the unconventional way of fishing. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go out into the deep. My nets won't go that far. I, I'm not going to fish in the heat of the day. The, the fish have already gone deep in the water where it's cool. I, I'm, I'm just not going to do it. If Peter had said no, you know what I believe? Because there were two boats there, Jesus would have just gone to the other boat. You see, it has nothing to do with Jesus needing Peter. It was Peter needing Jesus. And you have a choice today. Will you say, nevertheless at thy word, I will? Or will you say no? Because when you do, Jesus will find someone else to do what is necessary to accomplish his higher goal. Are you listening? Jesus is speaking to you personally. Jesus has a purpose for where you are in this moment right now. To develop you into the potential you can be. So that you can rest in his presence as you serve him. May we all pray together. together. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.